Luke chapter 6, we're going to be looking at a few verses starting in verse 31. The title of this message is Truth Telling Without Judging. Truth Telling Without Judging. This is the message that I promised you a few weeks ago. And I got to say, I think we're all in a lot of trouble. This issue of judging others, I think we're all in a lot of trouble. I say that because I've been in a lot of trouble. I've known that I would teach this message for a while. One of the things that I'm diligent to do when I know I'm going to teach on a certain topic, before I teach it to you guys, I teach and preach it to myself for weeks because I believe that no man has a right to teach others what he has first not learned himself by the Holy Spirit. So by grace, I endeavor to learn these things myself. I've been teaching and preaching to myself and studying this topic, and I have been busted. I have spent the last several weeks repeating, uh, excuse me, repenting repeatedly day in and day out. I've been in a lot of trouble, but God's mercy is beautiful. I've had to repent. You guys might have to too. Look what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 31. Jesus says, and just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. Look at this next sentence. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful and do not judge and you won't be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Let's pray. Lord, the moment we read this, we are aware of how far we fall short, at least I am that I struggle with forgiving everyone I need to forgive, struggle with not judging people the moment they walk in the room, the moment they open their mouth. And yet you've called us not to do this, Lord. You've called us to a higher standard because you have forgiven us. And because of Jesus, we've escaped judgment and condemnation. And now you're calling us to help others escape the same thing then we're just asking for help. We're asking each one of us in this room that you would make us alive with the gospel that as never before, the truth of the gospel would permeate our lives and we would realize how lost we are apart from you, how much we've been forgiven of, that we would be like the woman that worshiped you, that because we've been forgiven much, we love much, that we would love you much and we would love others much. God, we want to be a better representation of who you are in this world. We blow it more than we want to. And so we're asking for grace and for help and for transformation. We ask the Holy Spirit, you transform us. You make us a humble people who get and understand the good news that we've been forgiven and not judged and free from condemnation. And so we would forgive and not judge and set people free from condemnation. Help us to do that, Lord. We ask together that you please anoint me 
empower me to teach and preach, and that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, truth-telling without judging. This is a big deal. How many of you in conversation have ever had anybody say to you, hey, don't judge me? Anybody ever heard someone say that? Yeah, most of us have heard somebody say that or stop judging me, especially maybe from not yet Christians or not yet Christians friends as we're we're trying to communicate to them something about the Bible or God's standard or God's truth. And we often hear them say, Christians, you're always judging me. Why are you judging me? Stop judging me. We also hear this from cheesy Christians a lot, right? Christians that are cheesy and their walk is sloppy. This becomes their mantra. That's so mommy try to hold them accountable. Why are you judging me, dude? And so this is something that we hear all the time. I'm not concerned about cheesy Christians this morning. I'm concerned about the not yet Christian world. And this, the national surveys show that 87% of not yet Christians see us Christians as being judgmental. 87% asked about how they perceive Christians said judgmental. Another key perception that non-Christians have about Christians is that we are insensitive to others. So those outside of these walls, according to the facts, perceive us primarily as being judgmental and insensitive. (laughs) Jesus was neither of those. We are seen as being judgmental and insensitive. And this then plays it out, this perception they have of us then plays out in our relationships with the non-believing world as we try to communicate Christ, as we try to share with people. And this interplay between well-meaning Christians and not yet Christians is is so prevalent and so well-known that it even makes its way into popular culture and has become somewhat funny at times. I present to you Nacho Libre. I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... <laughs> Felicidades. Tonight we are going up against Satan's caveman. Nacho was legitimately concerned for Esqueleto about his salvation and stuff. He said so. He was concerned about his eternal destiny and the battle as they were going to be facing Satan's cave. And Nacho was concerned, but Nacho was insensitive a little bit, right? Nacho was insensitive. Nacho was pretty much your average Christian right there, kind of shoving it down your throat a little bit. But was Nacho judging or condemning Esqueleto? Esqueleto felt judged, he felt condemned. Why are you always judging me? Because I only believe in science, he said. (laughs) But is telling someone the truth, 
that they need to be saved by Jesus Christ, baptized in Nacho Libre's theology, and they need to be saved by, is someone, telling someone the truth the same as judging them? Or is that merely telling them the truth? It's telling them the truth, but the way that we tell someone the truth matters. The way that we communicate matters. We don't want to be insensitive, and we have a reputation of being insensitive. Popular culture makes fun of it. Okay, if there wasn't some truth in it, it wouldn't be so funny. We're to speak the truth in love. But we have this stigma on us as a church of being judgmental and insensitive to others. So our concern for their eternal well-being and our efforts to communicate that and do something about that seem to have been less than super effective. Part of this is because not yet Christians don't understand the mission given to us in the world by Jesus, that we are called to expose and confront corruption and darkness. They don't necessarily understand that or believe that. We're called to expose and confront darkness. Part of why we're not effective is they don't get that, and so they don't receive that. Another reason why our efforts don't seem to be effective is because people just want to do what they want to do. They just want to do what they want to do. And so this don't judge me thing becomes a mantra, a ruse, an excuse for people to do whatever they want to do. Bob Marley sang about it in the 70s. And ever since then, every pot smoker, I used to be one. This is their mantra. Judge not, don't judge me. We almost wish it wasn't in the Bible. And another part of this, our effectiveness, ineffectiveness actually, is because we truly are judgmental and insensitive. And what would be most helpful for us today and best advance the mission of Christ is to see how we fail in this area of relationships with each other and not yet Christians. It's not going to help us to lament and, and complain about the way that people misuse that phrase, don't judge me the way not, 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 not yet Christians use it, to do whatever they want to do and cheesy Christians use it. That's not going to help us. What's going to help us is take a hard look at ourselves and see where we're failing in this issue of judging others. We are supposed to be salt and light in the world and yet do that without judging or condemning. That is the conundrum. That is the challenge. What is the difference between telling someone they need to repent, they need to get right with Jesus, truth telling, and judging or condemning them? Well, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to judge in general? And if you look it up and say Webster's Dictionary, you have this definition. It means to form an opinion about something or someone through careful weighing of evidence and testing of premises. Okay, so looking at the evidence, testing some premises, and coming to an opinion and a conclusion about someone or something. This is not what Jesus is talking about when he says we're not to judge. This kind of judging we need to do all the time in life. Governmental authorities need to do this sort of judging, and they're entrusted to do that by God, the New Testament says. The church has to exercise discipline, and to do that, we need to do the sort of judging, looking at the evidence and making some decisions about people and situations. Church discipline involves this. Doctrinal teaching, the church is supposed to judge doctrinal teaching, Acts 17. Is it consistent with the Bible? 
We're to discern right from wrong in all sorts of areas of life. Hebrews 5 says the word of God trains us to discern good from evil. For, uh, Philippians 1 says that we're to approve those things which are excellent. We need to judge who we're going to date. We need to judge who we're going to do business with. We need to make judgments about who we're going to hire. We need to make judgments about who we let babysit our children, who we're going to let our kids play with and hang out with, what movies we watch. We do this sort of judging of looking at the evidence and testing premises all day long. We are constantly called to discern right from wrong in people, situations, and ideas. We need to do that. And we need to, as a church, get better at that. But not only do we need to discern right from wrong, but as a church, we are called to correct error. We're called to speak truth. And we're called to confront what is wrong. That's what it means to be salt and light. And the challenge is how do we correct error, speak truth, confront what is wrong, be salt and light, and not be judging and condemning? How do we confront evil and not condemn people? It's a fine line. And the way that we start is by separating the two, evil and people. We need to separate the two, evil and people. That is not to say that people aren't evil. You are. We are. People are evil. But our battle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, right? The battle is not against people, but powers of spiritual wickedness. We need to begin to understand that God is radically opposed to evil more than we are. Hates evil, but he radically loves people. And somehow we need to strike that balance and see how God does that. Radically opposed to evil, but radical in love for people. And people are the issue here. This concept of judging and condemning and being forbidden to do it in the New Testament is a people issue. It is the outflow, it is the implications of how we act out the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love others more than ourselves, to esteem other people as more important than us. How that plays out in relationships is the issue here. It's a people issue. What helps us get a grasp on how to strike the balance between confronting evil and not condemning people is when we understand what it means to condemn. To condemn means to express complete disapproval of someone. To condemn means to express disapproval of somebody. And the place where we generally do this is in our hearts. We generally disapprove of other people in our hearts. So it's a people issue and it's a heart issue. Sometimes it becomes public, usually in like-minded, safe company, like like-minded Christians get together and we talk trash about other Christians. They're too Pentecostal or they're too conservative or, you know, they're too this, they're too that and whatever it is. And we judge other Christians and then not to mention Christians will get together and we condemn the world. We disapprove of them. It always starts in the heart. Sometimes it becomes the stuff of public discourse in like-minded company. But it's a deep sin issue in the heart where we, who have caused ourselves to be worthy of disapproval before God, 
but have been approved of by God through the cross and grace and mercy, then refuse to extend that same grace and mercy toward others. That's a deep sin issue. We who have earned disapproval but been given approval refuse to give approval to other people. When we do that, we're viewing ourselves as superior to them. Somehow, inadvertently, we are saying, well, I deserved my forgiveness. You're worse than me. God can forgive me, but I I can't get over what you did. I received mercy, but I'm not going to give you mercy. In saying that, we are exalting ourselves over and above other people. And even worse than, we are exalting ourselves over God. Because in any sin issue, God is always the most offended party. Sin is always against God, Psalm 51. Sin is always against God. God is always the most offended party when there's any sort of sin. And if God can extend grace and mercy, but we're saying we can't, then we must value ourselves above God. We think it worse that we've been offended than God being offended. It's a radical sin. What we need to begin to do is let ourselves, our thinking, and our relationships be radically gospel-saturated. Radically saturated with the fact that we deserved to be treated poorly and punished severely. But we have been loved. We've been treated kindly. We've been shown mercy. We've been accepted, adopted. We are adored and forgiven and blessed. We need to let that truth radically permeate our beings until it flows out into our relationships. The way that you know you've got the gospel and the way that we can tell those who get the gospel the best is they're the most humble toward other people. And they're the most humble toward other people with the greatest failures. You see, if the gospel's truly taken root in our hearts, we're so humbled by the fact that God loves us and is kind to us that we can't help but view other people with love and kindness. A deep humility toward other people is the greatest sign of getting the gospel and being mature. Sometimes it's difficult as we're struggling through this issue to tell when we really are beginning to judge and condemn someone. And as I've been thinking about this for the last few weeks and trying to teach myself and let the Lord teach me, what's been helpful for me is I realize that I know what it feels like to be judged. I know what it feels like to be condemned. I know what it feels like to be disapproved of. And so knowing that feeling and the kind of interactions that have caused those feelings for me If I take a little bit of time and think about it, I can begin to see where and how I'm doing the same thing to other people. That made me feel this way. That's when I feel judged and condemned and disapproved of. Gosh, I do that to other people. I bet they feel judged and condemned and disapproved. Therefore, I'm judging and condemning them. We all know that feeling of disapproval. We need to begin to think deeply on what causes us to feel that way so we don't put that on others. Now, in case anybody is confused about this, it's important to say that if someone is pointing out a behavior or a belief that you hold that is clearly in contradiction to what the Bible teaches, they're not necessarily judging or condemning you. 
They're just pointing out that you are in error. We're supposed to do that in each other's lives, for each other, and we're supposed to do that in the world. Part of what causes us to cross the line is how we do that. Are we doing that in a spirit of humility, gentleness, first looking to ourselves with an attitude of genuine love, care, and concern for the person's well-being, for their situation, for their plight? But someone merely telling you, hey, dude, that's wrong. That's not them judging you. In that case, you've already been judged by Scripture. Nobody could judge you. The Bible says that your behavior or your belief is wrong there. And we need to, in gentleness, point that out in each other's lives. What is being forbidden here, then, is not the legitimate exercise of judgment in courts or in church discipline or in other relationships. But what is being forbidden here when Jesus says, do not judge and do not condemn, is our tendency to criticize and find faults in others. Our tendency to do this. And this is deeply ingrained in us as a culture. The reason why we dress the way that we do, the reason why we drive the cars that we do, the reason why we decorate our houses the way we do to a large degree is so that people will think how we want them to think about us. So they'll judge us rightly in our mind and not wrong. A huge part of our behavior and what we deem to be socially acceptable is based upon the realization that we are all judging each other all the time. From our our outward appearance to the things that we say, this is deeply ingrained in us. And Jesus is forbidding what our culture is entrenched in, which is the tendency to criticize and find fault with others. That's not our place. That's not what we're supposed to do. It's a sin. Jesus is saying not to do it. We're to use discernment. We got to know right from wrong and truth from error. But we are not to have a critical attitude. And this is pervasive in the church. Christians do this worse among each other, with one another. This critical attitude of sin sniffing, fault finding. Where we cross the line from truth-telling to judging and condemning is when we, number one, think less of or treat people poorly because of how they do or do not behave or believe. We cross the line from truth-telling to judging and condemning when we think less of or treat people poorly because of how they do or do not behave or believe. This is what we need to get. Jesus treats us well and thinks well toward us even while we are behaving and believing badly. That's a core component of who God is. That's a fact of the gospel that we've got to get is that God thinks well toward us and treats us well even when we are behaving badly. That's what we saw with a woman caught in adultery a few weeks ago. That's why we're talking about this. She behaved badly. She blew it. Jesus refused to condemn her. He set her free. Jesus is nicer to the worst sort of sinners than we would ever dare to be. This doesn't mean that God doesn't care about right from wrong or truth over error. In fact, it is because of God's insistence on right over wrong, truth against error, that the gospel exists and is actually good news. 
God doesn't compromise. He insists on right over wrong and truth against error. That's why the gospel is such good news. It's because that while we deserve to be treated poorly and punished severely, we are loved and that love is demonstrated to us and toward us. Romans 5.8, God gave his son to die for us while we were yet sinners. When we were enemies of God, in rebellion of God, when we were performing badly, doing everything wrong, God demonstrated his love and that he gave his son to die for us. This is how God treats people that perform badly. In Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking and says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In our text right here in verse 35, the last phrase says, for God himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So the thing about God is he treats us well when we perform badly. And he thinks well of us. Jeremiah 29, 11, everybody's favorite verse. The context for that verse is that Israel had performed badly. They had disobeyed. They had done wrong. They were now in exile in Babylon. They were being punished. They had blown it. And even at that moment, God says to them, for I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is the good news that God does not approve of the sinfulness of the world, but God loves the world. And so he treats us kindly and ultimately forgives us because of the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross as we repent of our sins. This good news has got to permeate our being until we think it, we believe it, it forms our identity, and it shapes our relationships. That though we've done everything to be disapproved of, we are approved of by God through Jesus Christ and he treats us well. People that get that, that get the gospel, deal with other people best. They make the best relational partners. People that get the gospel understand how much they've been forgiven of and so they extend that same mercy. People that don't get the gospel don't do well with other people who are sinners. Because everything for them, people that don't get the gospel, and listen, because there's many of you, people that don't get the gospel, everything for them is on a merit-demerit system. They don't understand the gospel that we perform badly and yet we're treated well. Everything is a merit-demerit system. And so they view themselves and their self-worth according to how they perform. And they view other people and value other people according to how they perform. These are people that don't understand the gospel. Everything for them is performance-based. You're in church today because you think that's a good performance. You dress a certain way because that's a good performance before God for you. You don't do certain things because you want to perform well. You do other things to perform well. Nothing for you is based on grace and being accepted because of who God is in spite of who you are. Everything is this religious win or lose, performance, merit to merit thing, and you treat other people that way. 
then you need to be reshaped by the gospel. You need to understand that the good news is not you need to do. The good news is Jesus Christ has already done. These people have never truly grasped grace, and so they don't give grace. And so what they do is they think less or treat people poorly because of how they do or do not behave or believe. Number two, we cross the line from truth-telling to judging and condemning when we attempt to hold people to and punish people for violating something less than God's rules and standards. Okay? We attempt to hold people to and punish people for violating something less than God's rules and standards. People that don't get the gospel always add rules to Christian living because they don't understand grace and the acceptance of Jesus Christ. They need rules to gauge themselves. They need rules to follow. And so they deal with others according to how they keep those rules. And what they do is they make themselves the standard of holiness. This is how a Christian woman ought to dress. And when someone doesn't dress that way, when they're less modest or more flamboyant or whatever it is, you judge and condemn them in your heart. You think less of them. You think poorly of them. You make decisions about them. The person that doesn't get the gospel always adds extra rules to Christian living. They need rules. That's the only way they know how to function. And they make themselves the standard of holiness. Precisely what Jesus is forbidding in our text is self-righteous and unmerciful condemnation based on human standards and human understanding. And when we think less of people or treat them differently because they don't measure up to our rules, our standards that we try to pass off as Christianity, then we're seriously guilty before God. In fact, in some way, we're guilty of blasphemy because God's the one who's supposed to make the rules. God is the one who's supposed to make the rules. We, we do this all the time. My poor wife, my wife is 5'3", barely 5'4", and I'm 6'6". Six, six. So there's this, you know, height disparity between us of over a foot. And so I always want my wife to wear tall shoes, right? Because it makes, me, it makes it easier for me to kiss her. I don't have to break my back to kiss the sweet little woman. And so I'm always saying, honey, wear some tall shoes, like some 10-inch platforms. It'll be awesome. <laughs> she won't wear any sort of heel whatsoever because she says, if I wear shoes like that, people at the church are going to think I'm a hoochie. <laughs> but you see, something has happened within her Christian experience that's caused her to believe that she can't wear a certain height of heel because other people will pass judgment on her. And that then affects our relationship in a small way, but it affects our relationship. Romans 14 says, but why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in another brother's way. 
So we're to free ourselves from fault-finding, criticizing, condemning, passing judgment, and instead, we've got to be concerned about our own behavior, that we're not tripping people up with our own behavior. Now this phrase, stumbling block, don't make yourself a stumbling block, this is much abused within modern Christianity. Christians sling this at each other all the time. You're stumbling me by doing that. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. You stumbled me. Really? Like, you really stumbled? Do you know what it means to be stumbled? It means that you're doubting the identity and the validity and the cross and the power of Jesus and your salvation in him. You're really stumbled? I mean, you're really like, oh no, I don't know who Jesus is because your shirt is too low. I don't know. Really? Christians abuse this. I know of a Bible college in Southern California that some of the young men in the Bible college were complaining to the leadership of the Bible college because young ladies were coming out of their dorm room with wet hair. And the young men said, when I see them with wet hair, it makes me think of them in the shower. And so the leadership of the Bible college made a rule that girls cannot leave their dorm until their hair is dry. That is an utter failure of Christianity. That is a failure of Christianity. Is Christ really in you if you can't deal with wet hair? Have we really conquered over sin and the devil if you can't handle a wet head? Is that really Christianity that we don't let people come out with water in their hair anymore? What does that communicate to the world? Does that communicate freedom? Oh, come to Christ and be set free, but you better dry your hair. (laughs) That's an utter failure of Christianity. And see, this is what we do with the stumbling thing, with the setting up our own standards and, and holding them against people. Only God is just, and only God can ultimately judge. Therefore, number three, we cross the line from truth-telling to judging and condemning when we make any negative decisions about people's motives. We do it all the time. She's doing that because she thinks blah, blah, blah. He's doing that because he thinks he's so this and that. We do this all the time. And when we do this, we're committing a sort of idolatry and blasphemy. We're putting ourselves in the place of God because God has reserved that right and that ability only for himself. When we do that, it's idolatrous blasphemy. We're putting ourselves in the place of God, doing something that God has reserved for himself. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says in verse 4, verse 3, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. That, stop right there for a second. That is such a radical understanding of the gospel. He doesn't even examine himself because he's not caught up in his identity being about his performance, but it's fully based in the performance of Jesus Christ. It's totally based upon grace. And though he's performed badly, he's accepted wonderfully. That's so radical. I don't even examine myself for I'm conscious of nothing against myself. Yet, I am not acquitted by this, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, 
who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Only God knows what's going on in the heart of a person. Only God can discern motives. Think about what is needed to make a correct judgment. We, we all believe this in our own culture. We trust that if a judge or a jury is going to pass a fair judgment, they need to have all the information. Okay, the thing is that we, when it comes to our relationships and judging people's motives, we never have all the information. We never have all the information. It's not possible for us to have all the information. Therefore, it's not possible for us to judge rightly. Therefore, God reserves dealing with people's motives for himself alone because only God is omniscient. Only God knows all things. That's what separates us from God. And so to pass judgment on people's motives and to assume we know why they're doing what they're doing is incorrect, sinful, and blasphemous, and it's got to be repented of. And we do it all the time. We toss and turn in our beds at night crucifying people because of what we think their motives are. We need to repent of that. James 4 says, don't speak evil against each other. Dear brothers and sisters, if you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. Your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save and to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? The difficulty is we still need to confront and deal with what is wrong. The way that we do that is we condemn what is wrong, but not who is wrong. That's Christianity. We condemn what is wrong, but not who is wrong. We separate the evil from the person. Jesus exemplifies this on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's speaking about those who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them. What he's doing is he's identifying that there's a wrong that's taken place. He's identifying that there's a wrong act, wrong behavior. Otherwise, why would he say forgive them? We're not talking about denying that anything bad has happened or, or trying to make the guilty innocent. It is essential to the gospel that what is wrong is identified and condemned, but not who is wrong. He said, forgive them. Reading a book called Free of Charge, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace by Miroslav Volf. One of my favorites, you should read it. He says in that, to be just is to condemn the fault and because of the fault, to condemn the doer as well. That's justice. To forgive is to condemn the fault, but spare the doer. That's what the forgiving God does. And that's what we're called to do. We're not denying the wrong action and we're not letting people off the hook. The reason we are able to do this is because Jesus has gotten on the hook for them. Jesus has gotten on the hook for us. And so this not condemning, not judging, and forgiving people should not be an affront to our sense of justice. It's an affront to our sense of vengeance for sure. 
We want vengeance, but that's not ours. But it shouldn't be an affront to justice. Here's why. Justice is realized for the whole world, for every single person, either at the cross in justification or at the throne in final judgment. Justice is met and realized and dealt out for all the world and every person either at the cross in justification or at the throne in final judgment. Therefore, when somebody does wrong, we have a historic and prophetic reason to be able to release them from condemnation. The historicity of the cross and the prophetic reality of the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. Justice will be met. Ours is to free people in grace and in love. Romans 12, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of everyone. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's God's job. Don't try to do God's job. Martin Luther, in talking about what our attitude ought to be toward those, those who offend us, said Christians should, quote, grieve more over the sin of their offenders than over the loss or offense to themselves. And they do this in order that they may recall those offenders from their sin rather than avenge the wrongs they themselves have suffered. You see, the problem is we love ourselves more than we love other people. So we're more concerned about the offense against us than the fact that that person is offending God. And so we want vengeance rather than for them to be set free and experiencing grace and mercy. What Jesus did with a woman caught in adultery was set her free because of the cross and the throne. The root of the problem is we love ourselves more than we love others and we, we fail to apply the gospel to our lives. The gospel for us has become, I'm saved, I'm not going to hell, hooray, and we go and we live our lives. The gospel is to have relational implications. I've received great mercy and forgiveness. Now I must show that to others and leave everything else to God. Those who have the opposite problem, they don't want to confront people about their sin, would hide behind the ruse, oh gosh, I just love that person so much, I don't want to step on their toes, I don't want to bum them out, I don't want to create conflict or make them sad by pointing out their sin. In reality, love yourself too much. You don't love them too much, you love yourself too much, and so you want to save yourself the trouble. Here's why that's a problem. 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Look what's at stake. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So because of what is at stake, we somehow have to find the balance between confronting evil and not condemning people. Because when we refuse to confront evil and error, we leave people in the hands of Satan. But when we choose to condemn and judge and, and, and let a root of bitterness spring up, then we turn ourselves and them over to Satan. We've got to get this thing down. And also, 
whether we're condemning people or failing to confront people, these failures affect our own relationship with God. 1 Peter 3, to sum up, let all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Somehow, to some degree, in some way, the blessings that we receive from the Lord are affected by how we bless others relationally. This is explicit in our text. In verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. This isn't talking about some karmic thing that if we treat people this way, it's going to somehow come back to us. This is how God is going to treat us in light of how we treat people. It's not salvific. We're not talking about people losing their salvation, but we're talking about breaking of intimacy and blessings and experiencing the fullness of God in our lives because we refuse to extend grace and mercy into other people's lives. The next verse, verse 38 says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. This is an image of when you go to buy something, when it says good measure, Instead of them just, you know, giving you the right amount, they give you extra. It's like you went to blenders and, and they filled up your cup and there's still some in the blender and they're like, you want this? And they put it in another cup. Has that ever happened? Barely ever. <laughs> That's the way we're to treat people. Good measure. Press down. The image here from this ancient culture is when you had a container and you went to buy grain and they would pour the grain in and say, there, that's what you pay for. Someone who's incredibly generous would press the grain down to fill up all the air spaces so that you got extra. When it says shaken together, same thing. They would put the grain in your container and they would shake it together so that it all settled into all the nooks and crannies so you would get more. Don't you wish they would do that at blenders? Because when you shake that thing, it's like half full in your cup. But if they would shake it and pour the rest into it, this is what this is talking about. They will, running over, it's not just full to the top or a little bit of mound, but they kept pouring the grain until it just overflowed. And then it says, they will pour into your lap. It meant that so much was being given that in that day, in that culture, when they wore those flowy grounds, gowns, they would have to put them like this and fill them up with all that extra grain. And what it says is, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return by God. If we are generous in pouring out grace and mercy and forgiveness into other people's lives, God is going to deal with us in that same way. Christ makes this explicit when he teaches us how to pray. He teaches us to pray this way. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. To the degree that we forgive people's sins against us, forgive our sins. He says in Matthew 5, 14, for if you forgive others of their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. So what's at stake here is too much to blow this. I need to repent. We need to repent. God prefers to act in mercy but he who wants to put another on trial invites God to put him on trial. He who condemns another for his failings invites God to condemn him for his own failings. So how do you prefer to act? Judging, criticizing, condemning, 
thinking less of, making yourself feel better, or grace, mercy, forgiveness, and generosity. Lord, help us with these things. Help me with these things, Lord. I fail just severely in this area. Lord, I just repent before my brothers and sisters for having a judgmental, critical heart and attitude. And we ask together that you would transform us, that Jesus, we be more like you. Help us as your church in this community to walk that razor edge of confronting evil but not condemning people. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us grace. Lord, help us to get right today if there's people that we've wronged, that we've held in bondage to our bitterness. Help us to set them free. Lord, you're so kind to us. Teach us to be kind to people. Shattered by the fall Bro